Oh Lord, our God, we come before you now and we ask that your spirit would minister to us through the power of your word. You promised, Almighty God, through your prophet so many centuries ago that your word would not return to you void, that it would accomplish its purpose. And we ask that blessing tonight. Please give me, Father, as your appointed minister, the grace I need to preach your word in a manner which is pleasing to you and beneficial to your blood-purchased sheep. In the precious name of Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Amen. Ministers have the privilege, if they like to, to read a lot. We, it's one of the job requirements. If you're not an avid reader, it's really not the ministry or the call for you. It's rather like a carpenter being allergic to hammers. It's just not going to work. And in my casual reading, I'm reading a couple of fascinating biographies. One is an epic, gigantic biography, which I will not read all the pages of, Alexander Hamilton, one of our founding fathers. The other one is a small, compact autobiography of Vladimir Putin, Putin the um, semi-czar of Russia. Now, Mr. Hamilton, of course, was one of the most complex and influential of the founding fathers, and Mr. Putin is certainly one of the most powerful men on planet Earth at the moment. Biographies have been with us for a long time. Many of us find them fascinating. The libraries of the world are filled with biographies of the high and mighty. Why is that? They're interesting. Usually the people have done something or said something, either outlandish or important, and we find it interesting to find out about them. Do you see this table behind me? It's in front of you? In a very real sense, you see the biography of your salvation in bold relief and blazing colors and those elements hidden behind those vestments. That's the representation of your salvation. That bread and that fruit of the vine represents the broken body and shed blood of your Savior. Without that, none of us have a chance. What we need to understand is a very simple truth. That Jesus' sacrifice of himself saves us from the wrath of God. Jesus' sacrifice of himself saves us from the wrath of God. Now, a lot of us look forward to Easter, which is good. Maybe you smell the flowers. I certainly smell them. I'm a little bit allergic to this batch here. Many of us love Christmas, and well, we should. We like the joy, and the splendor, the wonder, and dare I say it, even the frivolity of it. But remember that in history, 2,000 years ago, before, between what we call Christmas and what we term Easter, Resurrection Sunday, Jesus Christ experienced a lot of pain, misery, and suffering. A lot of pain, misery, and suffering. I think it's conspicuous that the Gospels nowhere show Jesus laughing. Nowhere do the Gospels see him even cracking a joke. Why do you think that is? 
Well, imagine you can't, but try. I can't either, but I'm going to try. Being perfectly sinless. Being perfectly holy. And seeing the sin and misery and degradation and evil all around you. How could you possibly laugh? How could you possibly joke? Scriptures tell us that Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It's not just because of what happened on Calvary. Picture him as a little boy, five, six years old if you like. And he just senses, he just knows in his heart, things are not as they should be. Things are wrong. Something is rotten in Galilee. And everywhere he goes, something is rotten. And when he goes down to Jerusalem for the Passover feast as he grows older, he must have begun to realize in his humanity that that Passover lamb foreshadowed him. He grew as a man. He grew as a child. He was a real man. Real flesh and blood. God can't die. Only flesh and blood can die. So there must have come a point where he realized, that's me. That Passover lamb represents what I am going to go through sometime in the future. How could he possibly joke? And a lot of things go on here in Matthew 26 that if we don't pay close attention, we can pass them by. So let's just for a moment take a look at some of the characters, some of the players, if you will, in this tragedy. First up, not where I started to read, but at the beginning of the chapter, you don't have to turn there, we find Caiaphas, the high priest. He assembles all the chief priests and scribes at his palace. And there they plot to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. Caiaphas is the high priest that year. You might not know what the high priest represented. Well, he represented Jesus Christ, the great and final high priest. What do we see of Caiaphas in the Gospels? What do we see of him here in Matthew 26? A conniving, petty, sniveling politician. The high priest was to be a holy man. He was to be a man of impeccable character. This man had the privilege on the Day of Atonement what you might have heard called Yom Kippur, to go into the holiest place of the tabernacle or the temple, depending on the time period, and offering up a sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people once a year. That's one of the benefits he had. And it all represented and foreshadowed Christ in what do we see? A sniveling, conniving, petty politician. A grown man with a child's mind and an even darker heart. And what of the group that he hangs around with? The chief priests, those buddies, his father-in-law, scribes, the teachers, and the elders of the people. Notice they're assembled at his palace. Speaking of Christmas, Jesus was born in a cattle stall. And here we have Caiaphas and his cronies assembling in a palace. 
the palace. There's certainly nothing that forbids a high priest from living in a nice home in the law of God and the Torah, but it just, it just should leave a bad taste in your mouth when you realize that there are a lot of hungry, poor people in Palestine at the time. There still are, and he's living in a palace. As the narrative continues, Jesus is in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, and an unnamed woman, we know that it was Mary, one of the Marys, but in this account she's unnamed. She brings an alabaster flask, a very costly fragrant oil, and pours it on his head as an anointing. The disciples don't like this, especially Judas. It's expensive. This should have been used more properly. This is finances that should have been stewarded for some type of church building program or some type of ministry outreach. And you would think that Jesus would say, yeah, you're right. What a waste of money this is. And he doesn't. He upgrades them because even though they have spent three plus years with him on an almost daily basis, not every day, but most of those three years on a daily basis, they still don't get it. They're still Deaf, dumb, and blind kids. That's really what they are. This unnamed woman gets it. She's anointing him for his burial. And Jesus gives her a great compliment. He prophesies that for the remainder of time, as long as the gospel is preached, people will remember her and her act. And indeed, we do. We don't know much about most of the disciples. There's conjecture of what Thomas did. James the Less, Simon the Zealot, Bartholomew. We don't know much about them, but we know her. We remember her. We remember her story. Her humility. Her understanding of who Jesus truly was and what he was there to accomplish. She understood. The lettered men of the day didn't, and his disciples didn't either. Next up in the narrative is Judas. Judas Iscariot. We're given his, the name of his father. And then he goes and he says, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they Counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. That's a prophesy, prophecy from the Old Testament. I won't tell you where. Go home in your study Bible and find it. 30 shekels of silver, we think of them as just maybe two handfuls, a couple of pocketfuls. We don't know exactly what they were worth. Most estimates think somewhere, and this is a, a wide range, somewhere between, in today's dollars, $12,000 and 40000 Either way, it's a lot of money for back then. But when you think about what Judas got for it, certainly one of the lowest chambers in hell, it really is a paltry sum. To see a man sell his soul for 30 shekels of silver. Money doesn't buy your way into heaven and money will never, ever buy you 
passage out of hell. 30 shekels of silver. What do we see in Judas? Greed. Pure, naked greed and evil. The Gospel of John tells us that Satan personally entered this man. He's greedy from the start. In another Gospel account, he is the one who's most indignant at Mary for pouring the ointment on Christ. Why? Because he kept the money box and they figured out afterwards, oh, well, he was cooking the books. He was taking from the box at will. And that's what we see of Judas. He's infamous, notorious. If you call somebody a Judas, it's generally speaking not a compliment. Then Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, which we will celebrate in a bit. And he predicts that they will all stumble because of him. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He says they're all going to disappoint him. They're all going to forsake him. They're all going to flee, leave him alone. And all of them are wise enough to keep their mouths shut except one. Peter. Peter has a real problem. He's verbally challenged. He never can seem to keep his mouth shut. Sometimes he says wonderful things. He either says something wonderful and prophetic and amazing, or he says something so bizarre and so knuckleheaded that we can't believe it came out of the same man's mouth. And he basically says, Lord, even if they all leave, I will stay. Yeah, well, we know how that worked out, don't we? Because we read the end of the chapter. He denied him three times. Twice to little serving girls. So Peter, this brave man, and most certainly Peter was the one who most likely cut off the high priest's servant's ear. This bold man, this man of great contradictions, when push came to shove, yes, he did follow Jesus at a distance. But at the end of the day, he bailed out as well. At least the others were wise enough to keep their mouths shut. So in Peter, we see pride, boastfulness, and at the end of the day, more than a little bit of cowardice, I would think. Who else is here? Peter again. James and John. Jesus' inner circle, the sons of Zebedee. Jesus is now ready to go to the garden of Gethsemane and literally look death straight in the face. It is here that he will ask as a human being, Father, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I don't want to do this. Yes, Jesus, your Lord, was terrified about what was coming down the pike. He was terrified. Many of us are afraid of death. Many of us are afraid of being old and feeble. But what Jesus was scared of wasn't necessarily physical death. It was a spiritual death that he was about to see. He was looking at horror. He was literally looking into the face of hell. He realized that he would be, and I'm not saying this in a vulgar way, going to hell for the sins of his people on that cross. So he brings these three disciples, his closest associates, 
and asks them one final favor. Just stay here and pray with me. I need you. I need you. I've been here for you. I fed you. Peter, he didn't say this, but Peter, you walked on. I, I gave you the power to walk on water. I commissioned you. You've healed people. You've healed the sick, cast out demons in my name. Stay here and pray with me just for an hour or so, please. They fall asleep. They take a nap. And then they take another. And then finally he says, sleep on. The moment's at hand. And the next group that comes is the mob. It's not really a mob. It's a police force. And there's probably some ragtags with them. But these are armed guards sent by the high priests, and Judas is leading them. And they come armed to the teeth. Armed to the teeth. What do we see in these people? Jesus has been ministering for three years. He's come down on guerrilla missions, as it were, to Jerusalem every few months or so. And here they are. He's not done anything. He's never lifted his hand to anyone. He cleared out the temple at the beginning of his ministry, and he cleared out the temple at the end of his ministry. Do you know why he did that? He did that not because the people were changing money. They had to do that. If people were coming from a far distance and you needed to bring a sacrifice with you, it's much easier to bring some cash with you buy the sacrifice in Jerusalem, and then let the priest do the job. There's nothing wrong with that. But they were set up. Where the money changes were set up was a court of prayer for the Gentiles. In other words, they said, forget about the Gentiles. They're dogs. Goyim, dogs. We'll do our loan sharking extortion activities out here. And eh, Who cares if they pray? That's why Jesus did that. That's the only violent action he ever did. Remember the Old Testament reading. He's not going to break, not going to break a reed, but yet they come after him with clubs and swords. And you can almost hear the derision in his voice. Have you, have you come after me as if I'm a robber? Well, haven't I been in the temple daily preaching? You had your shot to just grab me anytime you want. And they take him. Judas kisses him. And they take him to the Sanhedrin. Illegally, at night. And who's there? Caiaphas, the high priest, the scribes, and the elders of Sanhedrin. The official court. And they bring forth all these false witnesses. What do we see in these false witnesses? Treachery. This is Ninth Commandment stuff here. Issuing false testimony in the highest court that God had on earth. The Sanhedrin. It was typical of the heavenly courts of God. All right? And they bring forth false witnesses. Jesus, again, he's silent. He's not breaking a false read. It is only when the high priest adjures him, places him under lawful oath, that he answers. And we ask, well, why did he answer the high priest? Very simple. It was the law. The high priest, even though he was a dastardly fellow, a conniving, petty, sniveling politician, not a holy man, not a man of God, but a career of favors with the Roman government. He places Jesus under oath. And Jesus has to obey the law in order to be your sacrifice. 
In order to be the sacrifice to save you from God's wrath, Jesus must obey God's law in its most minute detail. So here he does it one final time. It is as you have said. And the high priest tears his garment, which, by the way, he was not allowed to do. And they find him guilty of blasphemy. And then the mob starts to spit in his face and slap him and mock him. And asking, prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, if it was one person at a time, there'd be no reason for the question. Now, a few dozen people gang up on you. Now the question makes a little bit more sense. Now let me ask you this. If God were to command you to look in the mirror and be honest with yourself and ask yourself, which of these characters most resembles my Christian walk? And you had to make a choice. Who would you pick? If you're like me, if you're like most of us, you probably see snapshots and snippets of a couple of them, to a greater or lesser degree. That's how it is with all of us. Who of us has not ever been leery of the crowd and not spoken up on behalf of our Lord? Who of us has not been petty at one time or another and curried the favor of the crowd? Who of us at one time or another has never in our thoughts, words, or deeds ever denied the Lord who bought us with his blood? Every one of us did. We confessed our sins before, remember? Why did you confess your sins? Because when we look at these people, we see parts of ourselves. And that's a horror film that should never be. But the last participant in this drama is Jesus, isn't it? Let me read for you a passage from the book of Deuteronomy that if you're not familiar with it, will make your blood curdle, especially if you're a youngling. Deuteronomy 21, you don't have to turn there, just listen. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city. And they shall say to the elders of his city, This son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. That should make your blood curdle. It offends our modern sensibilities. And it should. The law of God is there to terrify us. That's the first use of the law, to convict us of our sin. And this was at one time a real judicial law for our old covenant forefathers. We don't know how often it was enacted. It would be very difficult for a mother and a father to do this, to judge a son. Completely incorrigible. 
But hold on to your hat just for a minute. Because the horror story gets worse. What we see in this law and what we see in all laws is the face of Jesus Christ. I'd like, to imagine, like you to imagine for a moment all the sins you have committed or will ever commit and picture them on Jesus' bloody face. The guilt of it. Now just picture the sins of everybody in this room. The sins each of us will ever commit and picture them on Jesus' bloody body. And now, and now, Picture, if you will, the sin of every single believer who has ever lived, every single sin from Adam until the end of time. And picture it on Jesus' broken, battered, brutalized body on that cross. You see, when God saw Christ on the cross, he saw that rebellious son who had to be executed. Even though he himself was sinless, even though he himself was impeccable and perfect, even though he had not violated one speck of God's law, this rebellious son. Jesus became this rebellious son for you and for me. That's the real horror of this law. That even though it was a real judicial law, its ultimate penalty, its ultimate fulfillment it's found on what we call Good Friday, when God took his son outside of the camp and slayed him, executed him for you and me. Do you know why we take our salvation so lightly, and we all do? It's because we take our sins so lightly. I hope that this passage from Deuteronomy shows you that God weighs our sins, and when he weighs them, they are very heavy. If you're not a Christian tonight, I beg of you, fall upon the mercy of Christ. He will not turn you away. He will not turn you away. And if you are a Christian, praise God, hallelujah, turn to him. The reason why we need not to look to the characters that harmed Christ, but to need to look to Jesus himself all day, every day of our life is because without him, we are done. His sacrifice of himself saves us from the wrath of God. Go to him, the son of God, your Messiah, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the chosen holy one of God, the prince of peace, the one who is sitting at the right hand of God, Father Almighty, and the one to whom we will give account when the bell tolls for us, and the bell will eventually toll. And if you listen carefully above the clamor of this world, you can hear the echo of its ring. The day is fast approaching when we will see him face to face. If you run to him, he will save you. If you turn from him, you will forfeit your soul. Make the right choice. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord our God, please be near us. Comfort us in our hours of need.